Peace to you. Welcome back to The Naked Truth and thank you for joining me. It's a Saturday night, so we're going to begin what we all think of as our Sabbath, our day of rest, with a gospel reading tonight. It's uh, the book of John, fourth book in the Gospels, uh, chapter 11. If you want to read along with me, let's begin with verse 1. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. So, of course, one of those old biblical dictionaries, I'm sorry, maps, will show you what area this is talking about. But it's basically in the same Holy Land area. That's the Bethany part. Lazarus is the uh, apparently a friend of Jesus. And he has two sisters, Martha and Mary, all friends of Jesus. Verse 2. It was that Mary who, who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So that sort of lets us know who the woman was who uh, had the alabaster flask and another part of the Gospels full of expensive oil. And she broke the flask and used it to anoint Jesus' feet and wipe them with the hair of her head. Um, and Jesus counted that as her um, showing how humble she was. She was humbling herself in a, a spiritual sense. Um, by using her hair, which most women, people in general, women especially, usually think of as the, their crown, using that to wipe his feet. So it's that same Mary, even though she's not identified by name in the other gospel where that episode is mentioned. Here we find out her name is Mary. She has a brother, Lazarus, and a sister, Martha. And Lazarus is sick. Verse 3, therefore the sister sent them, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you sick love is sick. So they've sent a message to Jesus. This was before email, as far as we know, or texts or phone calls, but they had messengers. So they let Jesus know that his friend Lazarus is sick. Verse 4, when Jesus heard that, he said, Sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So um, we were able to report, you know why, probably left out that first word there, uh, this. But what Jesus is saying there, if you haven't, if this is your first time, Matthew 12, 37 is my justification or rationale for being careful of why it is, what it is we read out loud um, in general, but especially if it's in the Bible and even more particularly if it's the red letters of the Bible. So what Jesus is saying here, though, is saying that Lazarus is sick, but it's not going to be the death of him. It's something that's been... Um, set to happen, uh, predetermined to happen, maybe already in the paths laid out that's intersecting with Jesus' paths in life that were already determined for Lazarus to go through. Jesus is saying these things were already set up um, beforehand, that um, he already knows the outcome of them. Um, and while we're on that note, I've talked about it and mentioned it before, the sort of big picture view of things um, and how it seems prophets in the Bible, seers um, in the Bible, but also people outside of the Bible who seem to have the ability to see, to look to the future, look and have the extreme visionary sense capabilities to be able to predict or tell what's going to happen throughout history in the Bible and in modern times, sometimes you run into people like that. Um, I say all that to say, it seems, according to some people outside of religion, that believe 
there's something called, forgive me if I pronounce this wrong, but it's the Vonic rep record, um, if I remember correctly. And it's, in a nutshell, from what I understand of it, it's basically every eventuality of everyone and how everything's going to turn out, sort of like a God's view of everything um, from beginning to end of everyone, whoever was and will be, and the paths already predetermined, already laid out, and that there's some sort of record of it. And I think that's how it's pronounced, and I think if I'm thinking of it correctly, um, and that it exists in a, I don't know, the supernatural or metaphysical sense, but it exists, and some people have the ability to not only access it, but access it, read it, and maybe affect the way things will turn out in it because they have the ability to see, basically able to see the future, I would say, but not just the future, but a record of everything from the beginning to the end, infinitely, sort of, uh, so to speak. So anyway, um, that's what it makes me think of when it kind of, when Jesus knows that something's already happened, um, gonna happen, will happen, and he lets us know it, I think, so that we don't fear so even if we do fear, we have faith to counter those fears to help us and as we go along the way. Just um, a thought. Verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister Mary. I'm sorry. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So the narrator here, presumably John, of the book of John, is letting us know that Jesus was close to the three of them, the sisters and their brother. Um um, um, before we move on, though, Jesus said that what's happening to Lazarus, the sickness um, that he's experiencing is for the glory of God and sort of so that there would be a sort of divine revelation, which it turned out to be because we're reading about it now almost 2000 years later or six. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. So they've gotten the messengers to Jesus to let him know his friend Lazarus is sick. Jesus has gotten the message, but he's in no hurry to hurry back to where Lazarus was. Instead, he's staying where he's at two more days. So it's not like 911 where he's rushing right to you. Instead, Jesus is uh, gets the message and is staying where he's at for two more days. I guess maybe there's a big picture idea there for us to understand when we pray and look to God for help like a 911 call and expect some sort of immediate um, emergency response that maybe in the grand scheme of things, um, there's no need for a panic on our part that we don't realize it because we're in the middle of it at that time, like the disciples on the boat in the middle of the storm, even though they have Jesus right there with them, terrified that they're about to die. So that maybe similarly, now that Jesus is getting this message about Lazarus, He's not in a, in a jumping up to go run and see and, oh, let me go save him and do what I can to help him. None of that. He's staying where he's at two more days. So maybe the idea of that for us um, in the big picture of it is to not panic, to still go to God in prayer, uh, have that come to Jesus moment or whatever it is we're in front of us that's on our plate and pray about it for sure. And uh, leave it there and leave it in God's hand, leave, leave it in God's hands, leave it in Jesus' hands, leave it under God's authority to do with it what God will, knowing that 
we pray what it is we're seeking, asking what it is we like out of the situation, praying it be in God's will, and just awaiting the materialization, the manifestation of what it is we seek in our faith walk with God, um, not panicking that there doesn't seem to be an immediate response to the things we seem to need an immediate response to because there is that big picture view of things that already knows how things are going to turn out. And I guess in a sense, maybe that's what life is trying to teach us also, at least one of the things, because things that seem so important and urgent one day, so pressing with such a, a hovering deadline um, that you don't know if you're going to meet, all of a sudden that moment comes and goes and it's not even a thought anymore and there's other things to tend to, other things that become the worry of the day. Maybe that's why Jesus tells us uh, sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Don't worry about tomorrow because I guess just like those waves, they come and they go. Verse 7, then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. So Jesus has gotten the message. Two days have gone by. Now he's telling the disciples, let's get on the road again and head back to Judea. Verse 8, the disciples said to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you. And are you going there again? So the rabbis are like, are you crazy? You know they hate you there. They tried to kill you last time. And are you really going to go back there again? And the disciples are wondering, has Jesus lost it? Rabbi just means teacher. Um, at least that's the way it's translated in the Gospels. Uh, so they're asking Jesus, is he sure? Verse 9, Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. So Jesus is saying in a very practical sense, if you're going to go for a walk, I guess even if you're going on a road trip, most people, if you're going to try to avoid get the best traffic and make the best time and make hay while it's day, you're going to leave at the crack of dawn, maybe even before it, so that rather than drive while you're sleepy, you can start your day on the road as the sun's coming up to wake you up, keep you going, keep it moving, every, and sort of beat everybody else on the road at least part of the way on your trip. But in the reality, I guess things are going to happen when they're meant to happen. So you really aren't necessarily... Um, avoiding anything there but at least that sort of gives you the pad i guess in case something comes up to give you wiggle room to and time to still make whatever it is you're trying to make um so anyway jesus is saying though when uh, there's 12 hours of daylight so that's when you'll travel um in a practical sense um but if you wait till it's dark uh, you might stumble because uh, you don't have any light to help you see the way Verse 10, but if one walks in the night, oh, got ahead of myself, sorry. Verse 10, but if one walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. So Jesus is clearly talking about a spiritual light, not just the physical light that you might get from the sun or a flashlight or a candle or your cell phone. Not that kind of light. Jesus is talking about the light that we emit in us, the light that's in us that we're supposed to be letting shine in our conversations, interactions, that people will see it and not praise and glorify us, no, but instead glorify our Father in heaven. That's the point of letting our light shine, not just so that we can appear to people to be Bible thumpers, but it's so that we appear to, pe appear to be, appear to God to be people 
who hear the word of God and actually do it. That's the whole point of it, uh, at least a big part of it, at least the way I understand it to be. So, let's see. Jesus is saying, if you walk in the dark, you might stumble. Verse 11, these things he said, and after that, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. So Jesus is letting them know Lazarus is asleep, um, but he's going to go give him a wake-up call. Um, verse 12, then his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get well. So the disciples already are in no hurry to head back to that town, that part of town to Judea, because like they said, when he was last there, they tried to kill him and basically wanted him gone. So he hid it and left and dusted the, the dirt off his shoes against them and went on about his business. But again and again, they've tried to kill him and the disciples have noticed it. So they're, they're probably trying to dissuade him from going to see about Lazarus, especially if he's just asleep. Let him go ahead and get a nap. He'll be all right. When he wakes up, he'll feel all better, is what the disciples are telling Jesus. Verse 13. However, Jesus spoke of his death, for they thought that he was speaking about taking rest and sleep. So once again, the disciples are close, so close to it. They're so close to the forest. They can't see the forest for the trees. They're so close to the situation that they can't see what's happening. They don't understand what Jesus is saying to them when he's saying that Lazarus is asleep and he's going to go wake him up. So Jesus is going to break it down for us. Verse 14. Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. So Jesus is letting them know in no uncertain terms, Lazarus has already passed on. He's gone. He died. He heard that he was sick a couple of days ago. Lazarus is already dead now. Verse 15, and I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there, that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. So again, in the big picture sense of things, that's probably why Jesus waited around two more days. He knew that Lazarus was deathly ill, but that even though it would lead to his physical death, it wouldn't lead to the death of his soul. It wouldn't even be the last word on his physical death. Um, and Jesus knows that. Jesus knew that. He could see that. And that's why he wasn't, it seems, in a panic to run and hurry and get to Lazarus before he died when he first got word that he was sick. But Jesus is uh, letting us know and sort of reaffirming it to the disciples that all of this is happening for a big picture reason, for things to play out as they need to, um, to affirm their faith and ours um, in time. Verse 16, then Thomas, who is called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go. Um, so um, in verse 16, Thomas, that's the same one who's known as Doubting Thomas, um, because even after the seeing all of these things with Jesus, including the crucifixion, he still had doubts about Jesus' divinity and doubted Jesus' resurrection until Jesus actually appeared to him and affirmed his faith. Uh, and called him out for his doubts. So it's that same Thomas, uh, and he's called the twin, so apparently he's got a twin brother or sister, maybe one of the disciples, maybe not, it's not clear. Um, but that same Thomas is saying now that he wants to stick with Jesus. Look at the reason he gives. It's the reason I didn't finish saying it out loud, verse 16. He's saying, he want, let's stick with Jesus uh, so that they can die with him. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus didn't say we're all going to head there and there's going to be a massacre when we go to see Lazarus. 
Like I said, Lazarus is already dead, but I'm going to wake him up. But Thomas clearly is still thinking that when we go back there, uh, the residents, the Jew, the religious authorities, they're going to have his head. They're going to kill him. And they're like, and when he kills them, they might as well take them out too. They want to, he figures, might as well just all go die together because he knows when Jesus' head's back there, that's it. Verse 17, that's not what Jesus said. That's what Thomas is assuming or presuming. Verse 17, so when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. So now four days have gone by and Lazarus has already been long gone. We know at least two of those days, Jesus stayed where he was after getting word that Lazarus was sick. So um, I guess that means um, uh, four, so four days total have passed since Lazarus appeared, at least since word was first sent out that Lazarus was sick and now he's long gone in the tomb four days um, verse 18 now bethany was near jerusalem about two miles away so the, this gives us again if you want to pull out a map you can see these areas of where they are where these things are happening while we're talking about areas where things are happening notice that it talks about lazarus being in the tomb as we keep going it's going to talk about the way lazarus was buried and then it'll call to mind the way jesus is buried with the strips of linen and spices sort of to counter the smell of the rotting flesh. And all of that is just to say, like I've said before, not that race matters to me, but since it matters so much to so many people, let's not whitewash things and realize the manner of burial matches or is very closely aligned to the manner of burial that people use in Africa. Uh, and specifically, or uh, at least as an example, in Egypt, the place where the people of Jesus' lineage, the people of Jesus' ancestry, I should say, uh, were for over four centuries. Not all the time as enslaved people there, but for part of that time, at least, they were enslaved there and also became a mixed multitude when they were emancipated from that slavery there. Just so we understand the different cultural influences that exist and are sometimes subtle and then so subtle they can get whitewashed um, by other things like religion to make people believe something altogether different that's not even there like Eve eating the apple in the garden there's no even not even mention of an apple in the garden yet it's very popular and people believe it and they go to church every Sunday and think it's true but it's not there and neither are a lot of the other things people believe and they believe them with all their heart and they have faith that it's true but it's just not true it's not true scripturally, and many times it's definitely not true scripturally according to Jesus. It's not red letters, even though it's still religious, it's still scriptural. It's not, it may even still be gospel or in the gospels, but it's not the gospel. It's not the red letters. It's not something Jesus said. So back to where we're at, verse 17. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been dead and been in the tomb four days, verse 18. Now, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away. So that's letting us know two miles away from where all of this was going down. So it's not like Jesus was way, way, way far away that it took two days for him to get there. Even in my slowest moments, I could probably walk two miles in an hour. So it's not like Jesus was really, really, really far away. Um, so that wasn't the reason for staying two more days distance. So that wasn't the reason he didn't hurry and go help his friend 
were sick in their depths. So what was the reason? Verse 19. Many of the Jews that joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. So Martha and Mary have a group of people there to comfort them during their mourning. Verse 20. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary was sitting in the house. So one of the sisters heard Jesus is on the way. She's jumped up to run to go meet him. The other sister is chilling in the house, still wrapped up in her feelings about her dead brother. Verse 21, and about her friend Jesus, who was in no hurry to come and help them when he heard that their brother was sick. No doubt that's probably going through her head too. I noticed exactly that was going through my head when my mama got sick, when she was diagnosed with cancer, stage four. And uh, even when she passed away, uh, one of the questions I'm asking myself is, God, where are you? Jesus, where are you? We pray to you. We look to you for this. We ask you for this. You say, ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. We've asked, where is it? And all sorts of different things that go through your head when you don't see your faith being affirmed. So no doubt, I'm guessing Martha's going through some of those same emotions about a brother being gone and their friend Jesus not coming to help when they know he can. That's probably the hardest part. You have the faith, believing God's able and Jesus is able. Why isn't God willing? Why isn't God doing it? Why isn't God acting on it? It's usually what you're left wondering and asking and thinking. Verse 21, now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Same thing with my mama. <laughs> if, if Jesus had been here in the flesh, my mama would not have died. She would not have passed away. The cancer would not have taken her life. Um, so similarly, Martha's getting her moment with Jesus face to face and asking him, telling him, not even asking him, telling him that if he had been there, presumably that's why she sent word to him. They sent word to him and let him know that Lazarus is sick. So if he had been there, Lazarus wouldn't have died. Verse 22, but even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. So she's saying, I know if you'd have been here, uh, my brother would have made it. Similarly, I know if Jesus would have been here, mama would have made it. So I have faith to believe that God is able, Jesus is able. May not understand why God, Jesus didn't or hadn't, doesn't, um, but still believe that God is able to. Um, so similarly, that's what she's saying. She's letting Jesus know, I have the faith to know you have the power. Uh, just not sure as to why, but she's not asking that part. She's instead saying, but I know that with that power, even now, if you wanted to, if you do, God will give you whatever it is you ask for. So she has strong faith, even though it's probably shaken by the loss of her brother. Verse 23, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. So that kind of statement would be, I'm sorry, I'm sure pretty com super comforting if you're getting it straight from the horse's mouth. You hear the Savior himself telling us that. And yeah, it make it a lot easier to believe and trust in it. Um, but saying we'll rise again, it almost sounds like no worries. Yeah, in the future, at some time, in the in some eon to come, your brother's going to rise up again. That's the way it kind of sounds. Like, oh, well, your brother's gone now, but at some point in the future, there'll be the resurrection. What people call the, the, the second uh, death or second resurrection or... The great white throne judgment or whatever uh whichever one of those people like to point to all of those are in the bible by the way but they're not in the gospels they're attributed to um 
things Jesus said. So some of them are sort of red letters in Revelation. But they're not all quotes of Jesus, but they are all in the Bible. And none of them are things Jesus talked about in the gospel. So they don't have those four witnesses, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, to witness, to um, agree on what Jesus says. Instead, the things of Revelation uh, are sort of out of left field. And we've, we've gone over those before. Just something to remember and keep in mind when it comes to what we're reading. So verse 24, Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. So there it is. Sort of got ahead of myself again. That's what um, is the popular belief. She knows that there's going to be that um, that sort of... Um, she's saying the second at the resurrection at the last day. So it almost sounds like in her faith system, when you pass away, you don't um, have the resurrection right then, as in your soul wakes up dead you know, wakes up on the other side. It doesn't sound like that's what her belief system is. Instead, it sounds like what she believes is once you die at some point in the future, sort of like the second coming or a judgment day, that he'll rise up again at that point, which she's calling the last day. So let's see what Jesus says about that. Verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. So let's take that bit by bit. So it seems Jesus is saying that what she believes is not the case, that there will be some, you die and you just wait there until that last day and then everyone rises. It sounds like Jesus is saying, no, that's not the case. He's that resurrection. So, um, um, and the life. So um, not only will the soul wake up on the other side, but find life. So not wake up on the other side and find death, destruction, flames like we read in Luke 16 but instead wake up on the other side that's that resurrection and find life that's what Jesus is it seems it's at least my understanding of what Jesus is letting her know he is in the grand scheme of things and that uh, in belief that our faith in him because remember that's the one work of God that Jesus tells us in the entire Bible the one work of God is to believe in him whom he sent, meaning Jesus. That's the one work of God that Jesus tells us in the entire Bible that is the red letters work of what it is we're supposed to be doing to call the work of God. Belief. That's our faith. That's our job. That's our work. Um, and Jesus is saying he's in, in that, through that belief, that's how we have life. Um, verse 26, and whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? So Jesus is saying, verse 25, the people who are alive and pass away, even though they pass away in their in our faith, or their faith, belief in him, have life. So they find that resurrection on the other side, wake up dead, but wake up on the other side to life, not to death, not wake up dead and to uh, the flames to death, but wake up dead and wake up and live that um, resurrection that that Jesus is that resurrection. But also verse 26 makes it even clearer that some people will be around with the second coming so that whoever lives and believes in me in Jesus. So people who are alive at that time when he comes again and have faith in him will never die. So in that sense, won't ever see death. So even though there's that faith, 
that's in the Bible, but it's also another religion that arises after Jesus, after Christianity, tells says that everyone's appointed to die once. Well, that's not true. That for one, it's an absolute saying everyone. So we know that it's probably not true. Then by the Bible itself, we the examples we have, we know it's not true. Enoch didn't die. He's someone. So everyone is not appointed to die once. And then we have the people who passed away and resurrected during Jesus' ministry and also um, in the Old Testament. That's not dying once. That's dying at least once, living again, and then passing away again a second time. And then not only that, there's Elijah who's carried away in the flying vehicle in the Old Testament who I believe, as Jesus says, resurrect, uh, reincarnated in plain English as John the Baptist. But if you don't want to believe that that's who he is, was, then you have to believe he was carried away in that flying vehicle and has yet to return or um, didn't die or is still traveling the universe, traveling time. Whatever it is you want to believe, you don't want to believe he is Elijah. I'm sorry, he is John the Baptist, as Jesus tells us he is. So there are examples of people who lived and didn't die, and even according to the Bible. And there's examples of people according to the Bible. And then outside of the Bible, um, even in medicine, who lived and died and then lived again and then died at some other point, being resurrected miraculously in the Bible or being resurrected by by mechanical means in modern times, like on an operating table. So that statement that everyone's appointed to die just once, it's a lie. So if you find someone in one lie, how can you continue to believe them for the other things? That's just one of the lies that counters uh, what Jesus says, even though it's, it, it goes under the umbrella of Christianity because it's New Testament. and uh, But it's not something Jesus says. It counters what Jesus says. That makes it anti-Christ, even though it's popular and people believe it. And as always, believe what you want. I'm just an example of knowing the difference between the doctrine, whether it's from God or whether someone's speaking on their own authority. That's what Jesus tells us the will of God is. Um, verse 26. Um, so verse 27, she said to him, well, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God, who's to come into the world. So she answers Jesus' question that, yes, she does believe. Uh, in, in the first part of what he asked about if you live and believe in him, then you'll never die. And the people who live and die will live again in him, basically. I'm paraphrasing that part. But she's saying, yes, Lord, I believe. And she's saying that she believes he is the Christ. That means the anointed one, the one chosen, the, the one according to the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament scriptures that point to the one who is to come. She's saying, yes, I believe it's you. I believe it's you, Jesus. Um, and the Son of God who is to come into the world. So the Savior prophesied through those scriptures. She believes he's the one, just like we believe as Christians. Verse 28, and when she had said these things, she went away and secretly called Mary, her sister, saying, the teacher has come and is calling for you. So one sister has had her face-to-face -face with Jesus. She's letting the other sister know Jesus is here and he wants to see you. Verse 29, as soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came to him. So now the other sister is having her come to Jesus moment as quick as she can, heading to Jesus to see why he didn't come sooner to save her brother. Their friend, her his friend, verse 30. Now Jesus had not yet come into the town, but was in the place 
where Martha met him. So Jesus is still on his way. Um, again, it's only two miles away, but he's still on his way, making it to where they were. And one sister's already come to see him. The other sister's on the way to meet him. Verse 31, then the Jews who were with her in the house and comforting her, when they saw that Mary rose up quickly and went out, followed her, saying, she's going to the tomb to weep there. So she's not mourning alone. The sisters aren't by themselves mourning Lazarus' death. There's plenty of people all around coming to comfort her during their grief. Verse 32, and now they see her jumping up, running away. They're assuming she's going to go weep at the tomb where her brother's been buried, not knowing she's going to go see Jesus. Verse 32, then, then when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. So I don't know if the sisters had a powwow, but those are basically the same words that her sister said when she saw Jesus. Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. Again, same thing I would have said to Jesus if I had that moment face to face to say, if you'd been here, my mama would not have died. Verse 33, therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. So Jesus sees how everyone's upset uh, with the loss of Lazarus, the sisters, and the people who are joining them mourning and grieving. Verse 34, he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. So Jesus is asking, where is he buried? They're saying, come and see for yourself. Verse 35, Jesus wept. So now, whether Jesus is crying, that's the shortest verse in the Bible, by the way. Whether Jesus is crying because he sees the grief that they're all experiencing, that'd be my guess. Or whether he is crying because he sees in the big picture of things Maybe this is what it actually is. It is he's moved by the mourning that people are going through, uh, seeing someone dead. But that's not the first dead person Jesus has encountered. Maybe what Jesus, maybe what Jesus is weeping over, is God is experiencing through Jesus what human beings experience in the mourning and grief process. Something God would not have necessarily understood from the bird's eye view, from the God's view of things without coming in the flesh and actually feeling your heart being broken by the loss of someone you love and the tragedy of seeing them pass away, even though you have faith in a higher power, but not seeing the higher power come through for you. So um, maybe Jesus is experiencing all that and that's um, for God to have um, part of the reason God came in the form of Jesus to know okay, this is why humans are the way they are, because they have all these different emotions when they experience certain things like fear or betrayal or sadness or mourning or grief or happiness or all those different things uh, that Jesus experienced in the flesh that God might not necessarily, I don't see how, would have experienced otherwise. Verse 36, then the Jews said, see how he loved him. So now when it says the Jews, it means the People who are around in, um, it means Jewish people, yes, and but I don't think it means limited to the tribe of Judah, like some preachers will tell you. I think at this point in the narrative in the Bible, all the tribes, they've gone through their dispersions, they've gone through their captivities, and they're being returned back to what they considered their promised land, the holy land. So at this point, I don't think, as they don't seem to be broken up by tribes anymore. They're all just generally referred to as Jews, whether they're because they're residents of, of Judea or 
because they are of the same lineage or ancestry of Jesus's. I think it's just a blanket term for uh, everyone there in the area. Uh, but whatever the case may be, the people there are saying, are they taking note and thinking that Jesus is in tears because he's moved by the death of Lazarus? Maybe that would make sense. Let's see. Verse 37, and some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? So just like people always do, they're murmuring, they're sassing, they're saying, well, Jesus had all this power. Couldn't he have kept Lazarus from dying in the first place? Verse 38, then Jesus, again groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. So you can picture it, picture a cave like the Flintstones. And at the cave, a stone rolled in front of it. But in, and when you roll the stone out of the way, there's a dead body inside. That's where the corpse is. That's where Lazarus is. Verse 39, Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there's a stench. For he's been dead four days. So um, Jesus is saying, get the stone out of the way. Uh, presumably you'd have to roll the stone away from the outside so it's not like if Lazarus was awake on the inside he could roll it away the stone is blocking the door um, so he's telling him to move the stone out of the way the sister of Lazarus Martha is saying Lord you don't want to do that it's going to stink as soon as you move the stone you're, you're going to smell his rotting body no matter how many spices you buried him with Verse 40, Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? So Jesus is reminding her, reminding us, I think, about our faith, to keep our faith. So regardless of the circumstances, uh, regardless of what we've seen, what our senses tell us, with our eyes, with our nose, smelling the dead and rotting flesh, keep the faith, keep the faith, have faith in God. And wait for that to manifest. Wait for that faith to uh, be uh, realized. Verse 41, then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. So now they've moved the stone out of the way to the entry, the entry to the tomb. Presumably a terrible stench has blown up out of the tomb because he has been dead four days. And just in case you don't believe it, if you leave any piece of meat out, raw meat, uh, burger, I'm sorry, ground beef, chicken, fish, I don't recommend it. But if you leave it out and the animals don't get to it, if you leave it outside, animals will get to it. If you leave it out on your counter and don't have any critters in your house, then trust and believe very quickly that meat will start rotting and stinking and smelling up real, real, real fast. You can even do it sometimes if you even prepare the meal and the scraps of what you use to cook are in the garbage. It won't take long before those raw meat scraps start stinking. It's the same way the flesh will start rotting. So um, the stone's been moved, so no doubt they can smell Lazarus is gone. You can smell the stench flying up out of the tomb. Um, but Jesus is um, paying that nato. Instead, he's communicating with God, saying a prayer, uh, but not so much a a prayer more like an address because he already knows how these things are going to go and it's meant as a public event it's not meant for something just between Jesus and God alone 
Jesus sets that example by withdrawing himself to have time alone with God sometimes throughout the Gospels. In this instance, he's praying, but that everyone can take part in it, just like when he gives thanks with the fish and the loaves and multiplies them. So he's saying, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. Um, so he's thanking God, the Father. He's not calling God any name. No, Yah, Yahweh, Jehovah, Yahweh, Yahweh. None of those names, not El, not Baal, not Isis, not Ra, not El, not any of those names. Not Asherah, not Ashtaroth, not any of those names that we've read as names for God, names translated to Lord in English throughout the Bible, especially in the Old Testament. None of those names Jesus is using when he's addressing God any more than I would call my daddy by his first name when I talk with him today or any time. You just don't. It's disrespectful in a plain sense, but also according to the religion Jesus is in, the orthodoxy of that religion, the religion Jesus was born into, I should say. Not the same religion or belief system Jesus preaches, but the one he was born into. It's uh, not kosher to say the name of God anyway. That's why it's represented by four letters and not spelled out to be pronounced. Um, but, you know, believe what you want. Some preachers will just say all these different names are the name of God. Again, Jesus never, at least that I know of, approaches God by saying God's first name ever. It's either Father or it's God or the Lord, um, at least in English. And anything beyond that, I don't know. But he's giving thanks to God uh, for listening, for hearing. And then he continues, verse 42, and I know that you always hear me, but because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. So Jesus is saying that this part is being done for our benefit. It's not because he doubts that God's going to hear his prayers. It's not because he doubts God's going to answer his prayers. Instead, it's all just so that it can be documented, so that people will witness it, see it, and believe it. Because walking in the flesh, one of the things Jesus has probably realized that maybe God didn't pick up on from that bird's eye view of things, that God's eye view of things, is that seeing is believing for a whole lot of people. And even though what they're seeing may not even be true, they'll still believe it. Um, but uh, so the power of vision of seeing things is very, very strong and convincing the people. So Jesus is doing this so that there will be witnesses to it, so that the glory of God would be accomplished through it. Um, so that people standing by would see it and believe, just like Jesus said. Verse 43, now when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. So now Jesus has said his prayer, made it clear that it's so that the people can witness it. And now he's addressing the man who's dead, his friend, Lazarus, and telling him to come on out. Verse 44, and he who had died came out, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to him, loose him. Jesus said to them, loose him and let him go. So now this does bring up a question. And so they moved the stone out of the way. So presumably the stench did fly up out of the tomb because he's been dead four days. If it didn't, that means he wasn't dead. So um, clearly it must have. But now that he's alive again, what happened to his um, festering body, his um, the rotting flesh? 
did it just suddenly get sealed over like in the movie Hellraiser where the guy's bones and flesh come together like it's described in the Bible where the sinews join and suddenly he's covered in flesh? How did it happen? And did the smell suddenly go away like Febreze? So now it smells fresh and Lazarus is going to rise from the dead. It's not real clear, but Jesus has addressed the dead person and told him to come out, come forth. He didn't walk out. He came forth almost like levitating because remember, he's wrapped up like a mummy. So it's not like he could just walk freely. So remember, that's the manner of burial from Egypt that the people are in, have as ancestry. Um so most likely he's mummified, wrapped like that, and now he's coming forth just like Jesus told him to. And now that he's come forth, Jesus is telling them to loose him and let him go. So now Jesus is addressing the resurrected body of Lazarus, someone who apparently is not appointed to die just once because there he is alive again after dying. So letting you know, even though it's in the Bible and even though it calls itself Christianity, it's one more lie that is pushed by Saul slash Paul that arises after Christianity, and it's not Christianity. Just as a side note, verse 45, then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did believed in him. So seeing what Jesus did in resurrecting Lazarus was enough to convince a lot of people and affirm their faith. Verse 46, but some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus did. So we've gone over who the Pharisees are. They're the religious authorities. They're the ancient Bible thumpers. The Bible wasn't around back then, so no, not literally the Bible. They're the religious authorities who would cite you if you broke their laws and also benefit from citing you financially because you have to pay the fine for breaking their laws. That's who the Pharisees represent. That's who someone's gone back and reported Jesus to. Let him know, hey, you know that Jesus, he's up to it again. Now he's raising people from the dead. People who have been dead four days, he's raising them to life with everybody witnessing it. Verse 47, and the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, what shall we do? What is man works? Many signs. So now the religious people are gathering together not to give praise to God, not to have a hallelujah moment of glorifying God that Lazarus has been raised from the dead. None of that. No, no, no. They're gathering together to say, what can we do? How can we stop this man? Verse 48. If we let him alone like this, did we skip one? No. Okay. Um, maybe we did. Then the chief priests and Pharisees gathered the council and said, what shall we do? But this man works many signs. So there's no doubting that he's doing the miracles. They're not denying that. They're not saying, saying he's going on a line pretending to be a miracle work, worker. They, they're chronicling it. They're writing it. They know it's happening. They're not denying Jesus' divinity at all. Um, verse 48, if we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will take away both place and nation. So um, they're terrified they're going to lose their clout, their status. And just like in modern times, the wealthy in America probably around the world, but for sure in America, are so terrified that they'll lose $1 that the wealthiest 1% who own more than half of the world's, uh, more than half of the world's riches belong to 1% of Americans, or 1% of the total population. They're so terrified of losing $1 that they'll spend billions to maintain the status quo in buying politicians 
and buying heads of states and buying heads of corporations to keep from losing $1. It's ridiculously greedy. And it's a system that would have to crash and burn. And maybe even it should because it's an unjust system and it's unsustainable. And it's actually wickedness because it's on the backs of people's oppression and lives. It's sick, especially for a nation that calls itself God-fearing and Christian. It's really sick. Verse 48, they're terrified that their status will be lost. So they want to know what they're going to do about Jesus. Verse 49, and one of them, Caiaphas being high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. So now they're having their big powwow trying to figure out powwow, trying to figure out what to do with Jesus, what to do about Jesus, what to do with the Jesus issue. So Caiaphas, who's one of them, has spoken up. He's the high priest and he's telling them they're being foolish. They don't know nothing. Verse 50, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. He's saying, y'all don't see the big picture of things that it's all right if one person dies. They don't mind having a scapegoat. They're like, it's okay if Jesus dies because it'll save the rest of us. But he's not saying in a sense that he wants everyone to convert to, to Christianity since Christianity is budding at this point as far as being manifest. But instead, he's saying it as in we'll protect our own necks if we get rid of this troublemaker. They're saying it's best for us if we kill Jesus. That's what they're saying. That's what the religious people are plotting, how to kill somebody, someone who's done nothing wrong, but has said things that they are opposed to, that threaten their status. Verse 51, now this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for, that, for the nation. So now the uh, narrator, presumably John, or scribe is letting us know that the things that Caiaphas said weren't things he was saying on his own volition, but instead he was being induced to prophesy. And that what he was saying was actually, uh, actually a prophecy that um, Jesus, of what Jesus' life and death crucifixion would accomplish in the big picture of things, that his death would not be for uh, in vain. It wouldn't be for one nation. It wouldn't be just for the Jewish nation or the Jewish people or the any other branch of the families or tribes that Jesus was born into. But instead, verse 52, and not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one, the children of God who were scattered abroad. So that Jesus' mission, according to the narrator in verse 52, is to make that manifold flock, uh, uh, one flock, manifold uh, uh, flocks under one fold, um, one flock, manifold sheep under one flock. Sorry, I think I the titling of that threw me off there. Um, but you can read about that in the previous reading that we did. I think it was John chapter 10. Um, if you want to see how Jesus breaks that down. And then that gets twisted by the other religion to be the many-membered body. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus says there's many folds, uh, but he's going to gather them so there'll be one flock with one shepherd. Um, so similarly, that seems to be what the narrator is saying here that Jesus is doing all of this to gather all the flock into one fold. Verse 53, then from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. 
So that lets you know where the heart of the Bible thumpers was back then and is right now. It's not on saving souls. It's not on guiding people to God. As Christians, it's not on leading people to Christ. It's not on saving souls at all. It's about saving their status, preserving their wealth, and conserving that. That's what the conservative actually means, conserving their status and their place above everyone else. Not conserving the planet, not conserving the air, not conserving the water, not conserving the land, not conserving life, not conserving liberty, not conserving any of those things. It's about being conservative, about conserving the privilege that one set of people have over another. Um, so verse 53, then from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. That's what they're up to, trying to kill Jesus. Verse 54, therefore Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there into the country near the wilderness to a city called Ephraim, and there remained with his disciples. So Jesus never wanted to stick around where he's not welcome or wanted. He kept it moving. He's gone to another area. Ephraim, the same area named for another patriarch, um, and I think that's where Bethlehem was, where Jesus was born. Verse 55, and the Passover, the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went from the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. So that Passover is the regular holiday that's celebrated even into modern times. It's recognizing, celebrating the emancipation from slavery that the people encountered, and it's documented in the book of Exodus, which we already read in our previous Sacred Truth readings. You can read in that one there. You can read any of the previous readings if you're curious about any sort of chapter and verse someone else may have told you or you may be curious about. If you're curious about what it's like under red letter Christianity or my take or understanding of it, at least to this point in the Bible, look in the Naked Truth readings for that same chapter and verse because that's how they're indexed by chapter. Um, just look for that chapter and then see what it says. See how, go over it in context there with me, um, chapter and verse for yourself, um, whatever chapter and verse you're curious about. Back to this chapter and verse, verse 56. Oh, well, before we move on to 56, the last part of 55 about to purify themselves. That goes back to the different things we read about in the old, what we call the Old Testament but also to what the Pharisees do, what I was saying there. They're the religious authorities. They lay down the law. So if you violate the law, they cite you in breaking those laws. And when they cite you, you generally have to pay a fine. It could be cash, could be wine, could be oil, could be a cow, could be chickens, could be whatever it is they tell you it is. And that's what you have to pay them so they're enriched by it. So to purify themselves, that's part of their purification. People show up from wherever it is they were from to the holy place to purify themselves, find out what it is they have to get paid to get right for whatever sins or whatever it is they went wrong throughout the year and purify themselves so that they can celebrate Passover. And of course, the religious authorities are enriched by that purification. Verse 56, then they sought Jesus and spoke among themselves as they stood in the temple. What do you think? That he will not come to the feast? So now everyone's wondering, where is Jesus at? Do you think he's going to come? Do you think he's not going to come? Do you think he's going to show or will he be a no-show? They're all wondering, where is Jesus? What's up with Jesus? Where is he at? Verse 57, now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a command that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it. 
that they might seize him. So, again, what are the religious authorities up to? Scheming and plotting. That's what they're up to. They're um, trying to find Jesus however they can and hem him up into their authority. And they're even letting people know, if you see him, let us know. There's an APB. We'll go get him. They're letting them know. If you know where he's at, tell us so we can arrest him. That's what the religious authorities are up to. Not once did it say they were giving thanks or praise at all about Lazarus dying and being resurrected. And why aren't they questioning Lazarus to know what was it like when you died? Where'd you go? What did you experience? None of that. They want to shut it down. That's where they're at as far as where truth goes. It's like Jesus says, they're not entering themselves and those who are entering into the kingdom, they're hindering. And that's what religion serves to do even in modern times. Unfortunately, it gets conflated with Christianity, even though it's not. But that was the last verse of this chapter. So that's where we'll end this reading. As always, I thank you for joining me for the Naked Truth. And as always, I hope it's a blessing for you and that you'll join me again. I love you and I'll see you next time. Peace be with you.